you ever heard of the Country Women's Association? Yes. What's it mean to you? Um, just a group of women that try to help people out in situations, you know, for the community. Has been referred to as the Cranky Women's Association. Oh, definitely. They discuss all sorts of things, uh, and uh, they all get uh, a great kick out of it. Well, first of all, to overcome the loneliness, to be able to get women together to talk over, even if it was only the families or the turkeys they were raising, it was a great day to get away from the home and meet other women. I do think the Country Women's Association is my main interest as I became president this year and I do look forward very much to our monthly meetings. I think the last comment there taken from ABC Archives, that <laughs> gorgeous, rather says a lot. For almost a century, the Country Women's Association, the CWA, has been a mainstay of Australian country life. It's perhaps also true that few people have explored the full scope of the achievements and history of the CWA, which, as you've just heard, is sometimes uh, perceived, misperceived, as a scone-baking social gathering. Oh, how misguided that is. The first branch of the CWA started 100 years ago, and community historian Liz Harfel has unearthed some of the stories from the grassroots of the organisation in her new book, The Women Who Changed Country Australia, celebrating 100 years of the Country Women's Association of New South Wales. Liz, welcome to the program. Thank you, Geraldine. And I've already had um, texters. One man, a husband, said, my wife is reminding you it's still underway. <laughs> this is not looking back at something that's gone. This is still well and truly in action, isn't it? Very definitely. Um, there's still a vibrant organisation in which thousands of women um, are doing great things for their communities. Yeah, and yours was just of one state. Um, there have been other histories too, aren't, haven't there, uh, written? You wrote this during COVID. You decided to turn COVID to your advantage. But it it is amazing to think it's just one state you're describing. Yes, it is because you know, we, you know, in New South Wales alone, we're talking at their peak thirty thousand members and some extraordinary achievements. So, yeah, remarkable organisation. What were the drivers behind the creation of the association in nineteen twenty-two? Um, the main drivers was the state of you know the quality of life for country women and their families, which. Uh, Shockingly, many of the issues we're still dealing with today, but, you know, um, poor communication, poor roads, poor schools, lack of maternity services and um, baby care. <laughs> um, yeah, so many, just a poor quality of housing and uh, very similar issues, actually, to what, what country people would be talking about now. I mean, top some of the statistics you reveal really did take my breath away. Top of their list was transport and maternity health. In the 30 years leading up to the CWA forming, 9,000 women died in childbirth in New South Wales alone. Yes. And during the First World War, this is the other shocking statistic, during the First World War, as many infants died in Australia from mostly preventable causes as men died at the front. Mm. Uh, so the context of that explains their passion for, the, for those two areas of endeavour. Heck of a lot more than making scones. Um, yeah. How quickly did the, did the CWA... Well, it sort of annoys me, you know, listening in its own way, now, having read this and realising how substantial, seriously substantial it is, that it, it's, it's not spoken about like that. 
Yeah, um, and look, it, it didn't. Um, it, it's really interesting because they had their first delegation to a minister within 24 hours of being formed, so they were right from the beginning really focused on advocacy. That was their. They, they actually mm. said, "We're not a charity. We're here to advocate for country families." So, and um, yeah, it's worth remembering that I think, and it's still something, particularly in New South Wales, that are exceptionally good at. How quickly did it grow? Um, it was a struggle in the early months. They had no money and no resources. Um, so the members of the first committee actually had to hit the road and travel to little communities and try and stir up interest in forming branches. And it was a struggle. Uh, and then Queensland got on board and formed an association in August and, and uh, you know, a few about four or five months after the original um, association was formed and then it slowly started to build and um, by the end of the following year they were well you know they were growing quite quickly. Right now difficult question here but important I think did they also help or involve Indigenous women was it very much a white? Yeah well it's it's very interesting they were actually pioneers in involving Indigenous women in New South Wales. Um, they refused to have any statutes on the books that uh, discriminated about who could join. Um, and in the 1950s, they had a president who focused on working with Indigenous women and they set up six branches um, that were based in uh, Indigenous communities. Um, anyone could join and some of these branches had, uh, you know, uh, other members of the CWA who, who, who joined to help them. Um, and they did some great work over, you know, in that period leading up until the sort of mid-1960s um, of, of uh, you know, helping those women use the advocacy skills of the CWA to improve their living conditions um, to, to quite some effect. So very surprising. But you did have some rather disturbing elements too where I think there was a visitor from um, Queensland, uh, which was also a very active CWA, yeah. um, when there were people trying to pass um, uh, motions about in, involving Indigenous women and this woman came down and said, oh, remember, they have a lot of terrible diseases. But actually, I think the motion was passed anyway. Am I right? Correct, yeah. yes. Um, they had uh, some members who who were very determined that they needed to do what they could and, and right back as early as the late 1920s to... Um, to help uh, Indigenous women, you know, for example, you know, the fact that they had no uh, maternity facilities and, you know, sometimes they're travelling on the back of a truck to get to the nearest hospital. And, um, but I take they it... They were very determined to do something about that, yes. But they haven't <clears throat> occupied, or have they, um, office-bearing positions, to the best of your knowledge? Um, well, uh, within these branches they did, yes. Um, not to my knowledge at a, a state level, no. <laughs> Look, if you had time to go, a chance to go back in time, which CWA leader would you like to observe or what moment would you like to experience? Right. Well, there's a few, but I think the standout one for me is a woman called um, Ida Beveridge, who um, was quite a remarkable woman and um, I guess described by some as as the CWA's equivalent of Winston Churchill in the power of her public speaking. She was, she was well, someone who was describing her said she had an almost magical power as a public speaker. And she was the president at the time Australia went to war in the Second World War. Um, she'd been warning them um, to get ready. She'd organised 
um, first aid classes and fitness classes for women in the 1938. Um, she, she said, we need to be ready. There's, you know, war is potentially coming. And then in 1940, she was um, amongst a group of about 300 women leaders, the, the governor's wife, Lady Wakehurst, got together. And they had a public meeting in Sydney to stir up women to get involved in the war effort. And something like 10,000 women showed up, packed the Sydney Town Hall spilled out into the street and Ida's address was meant to be one of the highlights of that night, um, encouraging women to do more than catering and knitting. You know, we mm. needed to do more. And she headed up the very first version of the Women's Land Army and the first people who tra women who trained, trained on her property, um, Billabong in the Juni district. Um, so, yeah, she was quite a remarkable woman and the right person in the right place at the right time. She certainly, I've become totally interested in Ida having read <laughs> read bits of your book. And this lovely, she wrote inspiring messages in the Association's journal. We live in an age when women have learned to organise and we realise the power that has come into our hands through organisation. I mean, I thought, my goodness, that also was the case with the Teals, for instance, in the recent election, wasn't it? So th this is a, yes, a very she, important she, set of experiences. Yes. She was, I mean, she was a great scholar. She'd won the McCallum Prize for English at Sydney University. I mean, she was born in 1875 and she got a scholarship if parents weren't wealthy to go to Sydney University. And so she was gifted in many ways. She also travelled a lot and was very much aware of what was happening internationally and international politics. She even made a run for Senate at one stage, and unfortunately unsuccessfully, because I think she would have made a great, a great um, member of parliament. Look, I'm just getting so many texts coming through. Um, is it possible to repeat the number of women who died in childbirth? I'm afraid I can. It was 9,000 women um, and uh, just really a truly shocking sort of uh, in, in, in New South Wales alone in the 30 years. So that's in the late 1800s. And another question um, that they have quite a few city branches. One of our texters has said, uh, Liz, my sister in inner yeah. city Leichhardt, for instance, in Sydney is a member of the Sydney city branch. How many are there? Well, I can't tell you how many, but they certainly have a very strong city membership. And city women have been able to be um, full members since 1930. It was recognised really early on that that's where the real potential lay for, for fundraising when they wanted to achieve things like building maternity hospitals and seaside homes. So the city members have been a crucial part of the organisation for most of its history. I might add, uh, Meg from Tamworth says CWA rep rep represents chicks with attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> uh, look, um, how did it change with the times? Because you do devote a bit of time to worries, you know, particularly after the 1960s with all that feminist era in full swing, hemlines are rising, many people are living in cities. Does it yeah. have tough times? It does. I mean, that period was probably its its darkest hour. Um, there were real changes to society in Australia and they were perceived as being, well, you know, a, a part of the, the piece that you ran earlier was um, a reference to them being fuddy-duddies, which is a term I love. They were considered, you know, old-fashioned and out of touch um, and not really interested in, the new, in you know, women and their careers outside the home. But they... they, they 
are very attuned to what's going on. And so in the 70s, they sort of changed their focus and they moved away from sort of baby centres to setting up childcare, for example, for working women. And, and, and there are a lot um, of women now, sorry to cut across you, but like in agriculture, mm. really interesting new agriculture, running stations, breeding livestock, talking about regenerative farming and so on. So does yeah. the CWA fit into their, those sorts of women, does the CWA fit into their lives, would you say? It, it definitely does. I mean, in recent times, uh, well, not so recent now, probably about 20 years ago, they set up an environmental and agriculture committee, which, um, you know, they do things like study different flora and, and fauna and environmental issues. They've campaigned on environmental issues. They've marched in the streets on, you know, protecting um land and water resources from mining. So they have, you know, um, and they're very focused too on championing a different agricultural industries, um, which is, a, you know, they began that in the late 1920s when, when they got into handicraft to save the Australian wool industry. Um, and then there was a remarkable woman from Leeton, Gwen Green, who campaigned to save the Australian fruit canning industry. She uh, she turned around a time when they had over 4 million cans of fruit they thought they wouldn't be able to sell. And within a few months of her efforts and, and the CWA backing her, um, you know, they the Australian supply sold out. <laughs> so, wow. And that was in the 1930s. So, you know, in, in every decade, there's probably um, an agricultural or environmental issue that they've championed and, and uh, got involved in. Some have said, uh, some obviously didn't like it. Country women can uh, organise themselves very nicely and socialise without having to join the Country Women's Association. What <laughs> our texters have said. <gasps> Well, and that is that's true. But I think um, one of the things about the CWA is that they harness that time together to um, to to get involved in fundraising and supporting people. And you know, I think the current um, uh, floods and what's happening there is a great example. Um, the branch at Lismore have lost their club rooms, and yet their members are out there, um, you know, delivering food and. <laughs> and hand-knitted rugs and all sorts of things um, right. to the community. So, yeah. All right, Liz. Well, look, well done. What a very well-spent COVID uh, time. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. Liz Harfel, H-A-R-F-U-L-L, The Women Who Changed Country Australia, celebrating 100 years of the CWA of New South Wales, published this month by Murdoch Books. And one of our listeners has also recommended Dr Jennifer Jones' marvellous book, Country Women and the Colour Bar, a history of the Aboriginal CWAs. That's from Virginia Rose. Thank you, Virginia. And look, before I go, I did say that I would read some very passionate feedback after our Gone with the Wind discussion, if you recall, two weeks back with Sarah Churchwell. If you didn't hear, check out the Listen app. It's really worth listening to. For instance, from Ian Hoskins, who in the 1990s taught a course at the University of Sydney called The Black Experience in America. And this is his uh, very passionate text sent straight away. My overwhelming reaction to your interview was despondency that such a book, excellent though it sounds, should still have to be written and that its analysis of Mitchell's novel and the film which it spawned as thoroughly racist texts should be greeted with surprise. Gone with the wind is sugar-coated with Scarlet and her handsome Rhett, uh, but no less odious than Birth of a Nation, another book which helped revive the Klan and public lynchings just 20 years 
years earlier. Churchill's thesis is identical to much of the material we presented in our course. Most works, like the searing personal insights of James Baldwin and Richard Wright, and the brilliant interpretations of Lawrence Levine and Leon Litvak, were written in the US. But depressingly, they all seem to be just blips in the never-ending civil race war that rages in America. In Trump and his cronies, white America has its contemporary Jefferson Davis and George Wallace. Margaret Mitchell will remain a cultural hero. It is not, as Churchill maintains, that America refuses to acknowledge its past. Thousands of history books are testimony to that. It's just that their work does not matter if it is not read or believed. I lived in Atlanta for most of 1994, he writes. Three things are seared in my memory. The large Civil War battlefield signs dotted throughout the city, erected shortly after the 1954 court case that outlawed segregation to remind white Southerners of their noble sacrifice in face of ongoing Northern interference. The ignominy confronting several hundred African-American people having to attend a Democrat Party function in the so-called plantation room of a large downtown hotel and the deafening silence surrounding slavery in the privately run plantation museums I visited. It was all gush and crinoline. I imagine it still is. And another listener, Scott, said his parents would not let him and his siblings read Gone with the Wind until they were at least in high school. They said it was a pernicious book, a fairy tale that glorified a horrid way of life in the South. So, look, thank you for that and thank you for all your texts today, an incredible range. I'm very grateful to you and we'll try to take some up in different stories. Um, I will thank our fabulous team, Sky Doherty, Belinda Summer, Margie Smithhurst and Anne-Marie de Betancourt. If you've missed any of our stories, please do visit the ABC Listen app on your smartphone and get ready for the big weekend of books next weekend. Norman Swan and I talking to Anthony Beaver about Russia and other things. Bye-bye for now. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.